Welcome to Jaipur Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Lakshtata. What you're about to hear in this episode is a live recording of a session that took place at the Z Jaipur Literature Festival 2020 in January at the Digi Palace. Here it is. that uh we want this to be quite informal and you know just fun so we're going to open this up uh much earlier than usual uh so uh, we've got an hour so maybe in about half an hour we'll I'll, we'll open up to the audience and you know that way we can take many more of of your questions which i think which is what we we really would we'll be looking forward to so roger and i have both uh written books that you use harry potter as a vehicle you could say To, to 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 sort of follow our own our own our own interests but uh the science of harry potter so pretty early on in the book uh you describe it uh you describe yourself as a uh, a muggle scientist in in harry's world uh so why don't you tell us a little bit about what 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 led you to write this book it is a mildly bonkers book okay i i plead guilty to that um i was working on the daily telegraph i wrote um really hundreds if not thousands of stories about lots of different aspects of science i'd done a previous mildly bonkers book called the physics of christmas um which did very very well indeed and i loved the kind of cognitive dissonance where you're you're trying to um take uh, santa claus seriously how does santa deliver all those presents uh, in one night i could speculate about did santa santa do quantum teleportation did he have a warp drive sleigh i took it very seriously indeed i love the harry potter books uh read them to my children and i thought what a brilliant way um uh hook to investigate all sorts of science from genetic manipulation uh to hermione's time turner to invisibility cloaks you name it and i had a lot of fun writing so it so i want to come to some of those specific Uh, in a bit but uh so your book is about science and about magic and i i, I you you have a in one of the in one of the nice things about your book is you actually take the time to define pretty much everything and so so uh let's start with magic so you you've um there's there's a weak there's a strong definition and a weak definition of magic right so do, what, what what tell us about those two i think the maybe the strong definition of magic is it kind of breaks natural laws now of course actually if you do that in an atom smasher that you get really excited yeah. because you think you might be leading to new physics um but there's also a weak version of magic which is um you know you just don't really understand it it's a bit like arthur c clarke's thing about um advanced technology seeming like magic uh and actually by that definition something like quantum mechanics yeah. which have struggled to explain in 300 word articles over the year years is incredibly magical yeah. and and in even science now in india i think we've sometimes in the past uh had um, you know we've had these distinctions between science and technology or between uh pure or basic science and applied science and and you take a very wide view of what science is a so roger is a science museum uh, in london but you know uh firstly you range across the sciences te- technology uh, but also you take insights from game theory psychology anthropology history uh it, it's you almost get like everything in my book it's such a great book you've got to rush out and buy it 
And it's almost like with science, is, it's almost like anything that, that helps us understand and explain the world. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I had, a, you know, as I said, I, I'm passionate about science. I think, you know, it's the most, the scientific method is the most powerful way we have to understand the world. Um, and I think the, the Potter books are extraordinary. And in fact, I love the way in Accidental Magic you meditate on whether, you know, Proust is actually uh, a more important uh, work than J.K. Rowling, you know. Um, but I love all that. And I just decided that um, I would be, uh, I take it very seriously in the first half of the book. Second half of the book, I'm looking a little bit more at why we believe in magic yeah. and so on. Um, and actually that idea of basic science uh, technology, it's quite a murky relationship between science and technology. I remember years ago going to Bell Labs and finding that they were studying very um, arcane quantum mechanical effects inspired by problems they had yeah. with microchips and so on. So let's talk about the, the first half of the book, where the, the first half of the book is where, and that's the half I think that, uh, so, okay, so it's a half where Roger takes the things that we see in Harry Potter's world, in the magical world, and shows us uh, how they might actually be replicated or they might already exist in our world. And let's, let's, take, let's take a few of them. So let's start with, with time travel. Because I think uh, time travel and apparition is where you bring in quantum mechanics. And I've, and I've very rarely seen it explained so clearly. So how would Hermione's time turner work in our world? Time travel is a bit tricky, I have to say. Um, but the interesting thing about it is that if you look in contemporary physics, um, you can't exclude the possibility of time travel. Uh, Stephen Hawking gamely tried to get rid of it with something he called the chronology protection conjecture. And everyone's worried. In fact, it's alluded to in the, in the Harry Potter books by the, uh, the grandfather effect or the grandmother effect, where you travel back in time, you kill your grandmother or your grandfather. Therefore, you could never have been born in the first place to travel back in time. So you end up with these causal paradoxes. So physicists have always been trying to get rid of time travel. But there are various solutions to theories in general relativity. And there are also ideas from quantum mechanics where um, you might time travel back to a kind of different parallel world, which means that it could be, you can't rule it out. So Hermione's time turner could really work. But with, 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 with the caveat, as you say in the book, that uh, you can't go back in time to a time before the time machine itself was invented. And you have a wonderful line where you say, uh, therefore the universe is safe for historians. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And um, uh, I have to say, I think what, there's something deeper going on yeah. here, which I feel that modern physics still doesn't quite get time. And actually, I've seen theories um, by one uh, American academic that there are two dimensions of time, and then, say, Julian Barber, who's a philosopher, says there's no time at all. Time does not exist. So when you've got those fundamental differences in position, you can tell there's something very interesting in time and trying to understand it. Now, somewhere where you're a little bit more uh, optimistic about than time travel is teleportation. So you think, like, apparition, <laughs> as, we, uh, as it's known in Harry Potter, uh, it seems a little closer to being theoretically possible. We have had real um, quantum teleportation uh, experiments. Um, Anton Zielinger uh, in uh, Austria has done some of the really early work where you can teleport the properties of one atom to another atom. 
And uh, there are various quantum pioneers like Charles Bennett and so on who, um, I mean, one of the fun things of the book was actually ringing up something like 100 scientists and asking them, right, I've got to get um, apparition to work and flu powder. How can I make it work? Um, and the, the slight tricky thing with um, quantum teleportation is you'd have to define the quantum state of the human body, which means you need a colossal amount of information. I think it was something like... Um, one to the power of 30, or 10 to the power of 32, or something like that. But you might be able to encode this information, I think, in a sort of Harry Potter-sized diamond. I think that's what one of them suggested. So maybe ground up, that is the flu powder, okay, that made it all, I hope, are you following me, guys? Yeah, good, okay, I'm gonna be testing you on it afterwards, Could you, okay. you say that, uh, <laughs> is it one, one, one atom can hold one bit of... Exactly, bit exactly. Uh, so on, on quantum mechanics for a second. So, so one of the things you said, you know, the, the, book, the book, you know, uh, Roger has this wonderfully epigrammatic style. His book is endlessly quotable. I love quotable. this. I've never been called and, epigrammatic And, you know, it's, it's a kind of book where you're reading it and you, you, you want to, um, it, you, you should only read this book on your own because if you have anybody else around, you'll say some version of did you know that every two minutes. You'll irritate everyone around you with all these, uh, with all these facts. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 but on quantum mechanics, the line that Roger has, he, he says that it's, it's great at giving uh, factual or true answers, but it's pretty terrible at giving us a common sense picture of yeah. the world, so, which is why it's so difficult for you know, those of us who aren't scientists to understand. It, is a, it really is a magical theory in the sense that truth lies in the mathematics. And as soon as you try and translate the mathematics into you know, a kind of visceral, everyday understanding of the world. It all kind of falls apart. You know, quantum mechanics has got all these counterintuitive ideas that um, a particle can be located at one point and yet be uh, an infinite extent as a, as a wave. Um, the idea that two particles at the other ends of the universe can be entangled, what Einstein called spooky action at a distance. So there's been huge rows about the sort of the meaning, in effect, of quantum mechanics that are still going yeah. on today. So let's, let's move to a different topic, uh, the Hogwarts houses and the sorting hat. Right. Uh, so where you use game theory, actually. So, 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 so the, the houses, so how, 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 and also genes. So how would the sorting hat work in real life? Well, the sorting hat, actually, um, I think we're pretty close to sorting hat technology. There's quite a few brain scanning technologies out there. Uh, magnetic resonance uh, imaging is one. Uh, MEG um, spots magnetic activity across the brain really fast. It's actually quite surprising. If you look at very old PET scans of the brain, um, they, um, you get kind of technicolored poached egg style images of um, some centers warming up and others cooling down. Uh, if you look at functional uh, MRI, you get a faster, more detailed picture of the brain. You look at MEG, um, which is done with squids, the most sensitive detectors we have on the plan planet, superconducting quantum interference devices. Then you can really see crackles of activity all over the brain doing things. But we're now beginning to um, look at this information of the working brain and work out what you're looking at. So uh, at the back of your head or the rind at the back of the brain is the visual cortex they can now read the activity in the visual cortex and begin to make a pretty good guess at what you're looking at. And of course, that's got quite a spooky sort of implication that if you could fell asleep in one of these machines and started to dream, 
They could read your dreams, okay. And, 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 and the game theory, Slytherins and Gryffindors. There's, um, I wrote an earlier book with a guy called uh, Martin Novak, who's uh, a professor of mathematics and biology at Harvard. He's, um, uh, Martin's uh, looked at evolutionary game theory and really why people cooperate. He's fascinated, you know, we are the most cooperative species on the planet. You might not believe it, given all the strife and so on, but we, we are extraordinarily cooperative. And Martin has used evolutionary methods to model this and understand why um, you know, a member of Gryffindor would um, cooperate with a Slytherin or whatever. Yeah. Uh, okay, so to, uh, to some of our uh, favorite topics or favorite sports, so flying and Quidditch. Uh, so here you have both an account of, of, of flight, uh, of, of broomstick flight, uh, as well as uh, something that I as a Harry Potter lover had never encountered, which is a, a possible origin sport for Quidditch. So, so why don't you tell, tell us, let's talk about broomsticks first. Broomsticks, well, of course, there are loads of broomstick theories, you know. Okay, balloons, pretty slow, and we know from the movies that's not right. Rockets on the broomstick. Well, if you've got a long, dangling robe, I mean, it's going to catch fire, isn't it? It's not very practical. Um, there's actually more intriguing uh, sources of levitation. Um, if you talk to a Nobel Prize winner called Andre Geim, who actually got the Nobel Prize for his work on graphene, these two-dimensional materials, he used to have a sort of um, mad Friday night where he would just do crazy things. And one of the crazy things he did was to put a hamster into a very powerful magnet. And through a phenomenon called diamagnetism, he could levitate the hamster. And in fact, there is even, and I'm not joking, there is a paper written in a journal by Andre Geim and Hamster Tischer. And you can Google it, it exists. Um, uh, it was a much-loved family pet and survived the experience. And so one theory is that maybe Hogwarts is bathed in some big magnetic field that by clever manipulations could actually levitate the broomstick flyers. Quite speculative. And that, and the <laughs> but, the but the same magnetic field makes it impossible to apparate? Well, actually, now, now look, come on, don't start cross-fertilizing my mad ideas. It's already bonkers enough, you know? Yeah. <laughs> that sort of bonkers okay, square. So that, those are, now, what about Quidditch? Quidditch, I mean, I was intrigued by the fact that um, there was an earlier ball game getting um, rubber balls into hoops, which actually the Spanish con conquerors, when they came into Mesoamerican uh, society, they came across the Mesoamerican ball game um, if you think the stakes are high for World Cup soccer and so on, if you were a losing member of the team, you might lose your head or you might be dehearted. There were skull racks at the end of these Mesoamerican ball courts. When the Spanish came in, they'd never seen a rubber ball before, and they actually thought they were kind of magical. So there's, I thought there was some intriguing link between the Mesoamerican ball game and Quidditch. I should say as well, I went to a the first, world's first Harry Potter conference in 2003, where they tried to concoct a form of Quidditch, and I was on the winning side, which if you knew what a poor physical specimen I am, is almost miraculous. There we are, that is magical. So it's okay. like being the, a member of the Uruguay team that won the World Cup <laughs> yes. in 1930. Yeah. So, you know, one, one, of, the, one of the nice things about, about Roger's book, and actually in a way in which it's, it's a little different from the Harry Potter books themselves, is that so we, uh, most of us here are Indian. We grew up reading Harry Potter uh, in India. Uh, but the Harry Potter world is a very English world. I mean, it's, it's in the tradition of the boarding school yeah. story. Um, 
most of us didn't go to boarding schools, and we certainly didn't go to English boarding schools. Uh, but your book is actually quite global. I mean, as, as the, Meso the Mesoamerican uh, sport is, a, is an example of this. It, it, because I suppose science is not a national Absolutely. enterprise, it's a global enterprise. But I wanted to now move on to something else that I know many of us are interested in, which is uh, magical creatures. Uh, and so let's start with, with, uh, with, with um, creatures that we, we, we know of, but that are, uh, play a different function in the magical world. So owls, most prominently. I'm sure just as all of us who read Harry Potter uh, fantasized about receiving our Hogwarts letter, we also fantasized uh, uh, about sending uh, you know, letters by owl to our friends. It's infinitely more romantic than any form of communication that we actually use. Uh, so Roger's book has good news and bad news. So the good news is that uh, you know, birds are capable of a lot. Here's a, again, another one of his great epigrams is, uh, Exper experimental evidence suggests that birds are not, in fact, bird-brained. But, 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 uh, while birds are, are um, you know, not bird-brained, owls are not exactly the, uh, the wise men of the, uh, of, the, of the kingdom of birds. No, that's right. I mean, you know, uh, uh, owls in ancient Greece were associated with wisdom. They were seen as spooky in later societies. And I, and I thought that it would be fun to talk to owl experts, you know, about um, could they carry mail. And, of course, there are little elf owls that really couldn't manage a letter. Like a big, big, big vision. But then there are really big wingspan um, yeah. owls, um, you know, eagle owls and so on. Then I wanted to know, could they travel a big distance? And I thought, think short and long-eared owls in the UK are migratory, so they could carry a letter some distance. But then they've got to remember where to go. Um, and then I had to look at a little bit of avian intelligence and memory. And there are beautiful studies uh, on New Caledonian crows um, which these, these are tool-making birds. You know, the idea that a human, humans, the tool-maker, make, makes us uh, a unique species is wrong. You know, the, these, they tear up pandanus leaves and use these tools to kind of fish out grubs. So um, corvids are very smart birds indeed. And then yeah. I think in terms of memory, um, scrub jays are very interesting. If they, can, they bury their food, and if they know they're being observed, they'll come back and rebury it. So they can sort of look into the future and think, ah, I, I've got to protect my food. So they, there's quite a lot of avian intelligence there. And of course, gray parrots are famously intelligent. In terms of owl intelligence, it got more tricky. I found this chap, Eric Knudsen, in the States, who'd done these experiments where he'd made owls wear prism spectacles. It's a slightly mind-boggling idea. And it was to shift their field of view so what they heard didn't quite marry with what they're looking at. So if there was a little chirping cricket over here, they'd see the cricket here, but the sound would be there. And then he'd measure how long it would take the owl to get used to this sort of dissonance. And then he could get a sense of owl memory. And I think it was not bad for young birds. So I think if we had a young, long-eared owl, we've got a fighting chance of owl male. <laughs> So, Are you following me on this? Okay. One of my favorite sections in the one of my favorite sections in the book uh, deals with uh, <laughs> the the blast ended scrut, uh, <laughs> and, and 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 here uh, Roger I think outdoes himself because not only does he draw a connection to the animal world, 
He then goes, uh, adds a little bit of very anarchy World War II history, <laughs> uh, linking the blast industry to the, they're called the Bombardier Beetle? That's right, Bombardier Beetle. And, and the Nazi V1. The Doodlebugs. The Doodlebugs. So tell us about that. Okay, blast-ended screws. So you might think that a lot of creatures in Hogwarts are magical, but actually, if you look at um, real-world creatures, it's quite extraordinary um, the specialisms that you can find out there in the natural world. And the bombardier beetle has these toxic, hot secretions where it's bringing chemicals together in its rear end, and then you get this pulsing effect, just like you could see in a, in a World War II doodle bug, um, which leads to jets of hot, toxic uh, material coming out. So the idea that a blast-ended scroot is that magical. I think actually there the muggle world has definitely given Harry Potter a bit of a run for his money. Yeah. Uh, so moving a little bit away from the, from the, from the science to um, uh, do the themes of, of, of fan culture and fandom, because you, you attended this, this fan summit, and uh, uh, so do you remember what, is it in 2003? 2003, Nimbus 2003. Nimbus 2003, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, I, I, named that, after that, the Bruce. I mean, that name was waiting to be, to be claimed. And uh, actually, the first draft of my book, uh, I cut this from the last section, held a, had, was, uh, had a long section set at a fan summit that was based on uh, Nimbus 2003. But, uh, but I just researched it. You were, you were actually there. And one of the things that you, uh, you found there was uh, the, the subculture of um, slash fan fiction. Uh, so how many of you are familiar with uh, slash fan fiction? Anyone? Yeah, there'll be a handful. So um, I grew up reading Flash fan fiction, but Roger met the authors, so uh, tell us about that. Well, I was surprised. I must say, though, that I, I thought, though, your, your, your idea in accidental magic of, of focusing on Harry Potter fandom was a really rich, interesting area, because a lot of my experiences map onto your book. Um, I didn't really know what to expect. I thought that there'd be lots of families. Uh, it was in Orlando um, in... Disneyland, was it Disney World? I can't remember. Disney World, I think. Yeah. And um, when I got there, it was mostly 20-something women um, who uh, clearly had never, most of them hadn't met each other in real life. They'd, they'd obviously communed online, and I'd never come across slash fiction. And slash fiction was basically, I think it's fair to say, well, in that case, it was mostly erotic fiction for young women, uh, fantasizing um, about what if male characters fell in love. It came from, I think, a Star Trek um, uh, sort of, uh, sort of yeah. genre of fan fiction where the most common one was the Spock slash Kirk, yeah, yeah, where yeah. Jim, Kirk, and Spock secretly love each other. And, you know, when you see them on the Starship Enterprise and you detect a bit of tension, it's because they're in love, okay? And... In the, a lot of the Potter slash fiction, it was sort of Draco and Harry secretly love each other. I want to tear each other's robes off and sort of... So one anyway, of the, I'll leave the rest to your imagination. I mean, one of the most popular... Uh, in, in Harry Potter fandom, as opposed to the Harry Potter books, Draco was reimagined as a sex god, right? Uh, and so we actually used to talk about canon Draco versus fanon Draco because... Uh, so when you wrote fan fiction, you were supposed to be true to... J.K. Rowling's depiction of a character, with the exception of you were, with Draco, you were allowed to pretend that uh, he was not the Draco, the rather um, un uninspiring Draco that we uh, 
uh, sort of pathetic version of, of a villain that we encounter in the books and, and more of, a, of, of someone who is very sexy. Uh, and, and so these were, um, in Harry Potter fandom, uh, they were uh, what were called ships, right? So people who, it was like supporting a sports team. So if you shipped, a ship comes from relationship. So the, the, if you shipped, you shipped Harry and Draco, which means that you, you, read, you read or wrote Harry Draco fan fiction. And, and, and it was called the, um, the SS Guns and Handcuffs. That was the name of the, the Harry Draco uh, oh, community. It's getting which quite risky. Gives you a sense of what was going on. But so another, back on, on this theme, because this links to your book. I think for the sake of the children, we, we better yeah. end this theme, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> so in my. In, in, uh, I can see some very disturbed parents out in, there. In really. my. Uh, yeah, well. <laughs> I, di I did say our books, our books both used Harry Potter as a, as a vehicle. But um, in, so in my novel, there's, a, there's a, a sort of a debate between two characters about uh, how to be a Harry Potter fan, to put it very broadly. And, and, and the debate is about this. So they have a group that meets uh, every once a week in person, right? And uh, they just discuss Harry Potter, Harry Potter fan fiction. And uh, one, of the men, one of my characters, who's, who's an Indian, who wants to discuss the following question. And the question is, if you could have, uh, if you could ha possess any magical object, so like the mirror of Erised or a portkey or what have you, um, invisibility, invisibility cloak, if you could possess any magical object, uh, what would it be? And his friend, who's an American, says to him that we shouldn't talk about Harry Potter like this. We, can't, we shouldn't pretend that we're in Harry Potter. Let's maintain the separation between muggle and, and magic. Uh, so your book, of course, breaks down that separation with, uh, with great uh, glee, one might say. So did you get pushback from people who said, why are you explaining it? It's not meant to be explained. You know, I'm, I was never trying to sort of prove that it was impossible. Um, you know, the conceit behind this book and, and the physics of Christmas was I took it quite seriously. You know, I was really... I mean, there are some things in the, in the Potter books that actually aren't so difficult to explain. You know, we were talking earlier on about the Marauders map. You know, the, we've now got apps where you can see where your friends are, they're wandering down the street. So that's not quite so magical. Even saying spells, you know, if you spend half your life shouting at Alexa and Siri like I do, then that's kind of getting somewhere uh, there. But I took the, you know, the Potter books absolutely seriously. And some people said, oh, you're just trying to sort of prove, you're trying to take away the magic. Um, but I actually think there's still a lot of magic left in science. I think when you answer big questions, you often open up other big questions. And actually, I don't think science has got all the answers about life. So I think there's still a big magical component. So before I open up, uh, I wanted to ask you, your book came out in 2002. And, uh, you know, science is, is always moving forward rapidly. So uh, if you were to be able to revise it or update it, um, what would you add? And also... Um, do you, do you, do you, do you, do you, are there any, are there any areas in which you find that you were actually quite prophetic? I would never really claim to be particularly <laughs> prophetic, um, but I think there are lots of things that I'd love to update the book about. In fact, I've just been uh, working on a book uh, with an amazing developmental biologist called Magda Zernica Gertz, and you know, we're in a revolution in terms of stem cell science and being able to create stem cells um, you know, from skin cells and so on. We're almost in a kind of era of cellular alchemy, and I wish I could have had a bit of that in the book. 
artificial intelligence. I'd love to know what the carbon footprint of yeah. Hogwarts is. There's a lot of energy flying around in Hogwarts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are they contributing to global warming? I think we should be told. Um, and maybe my biggest frustration is that within a couple of years of the book coming out, there were not one, not two, not three, but four mathematical schemes of invisibility. Yeah. And then there became a huge interest in a class of materials called metamaterials. And we do now have some really plausible invisibility where these metamaterials, in effect, make light waves um, flow around an object. So you can't see the object itself. You just see what's behind it. So there's a much better invisibility scheme than I've got in the book. And actually, one, uh, one area you talk a lot about is gene editing. Now, how many of you are familiar with something called CRISPR? Okay, so a good chunk, but a majority are not. So I th I, we should talk about that then, because because it's something we should everybody should know about. Because gene editing has come a long way since 2002. So tell us about that. Hu I mean, huge advance. Uh, I mean, I did another book with Ian Wilmer, and and a lot of the motivation behind creating Dolly the sheep was genetic modification. An old-fashioned genetic modification was you put a a gene that you wanted to induce in an organism in a virus and you weren't quite sure where it's going to end up in the genetic code of your target organism. And, and to make, I think, one genetic modified sheep um, that made um, our, our alpha antitrypsin, a sort of human drug uh, in its milk, I think they created a 1,000 embryos. They created vast numbers of sheep. It was very laborious. You wind forward to today with CRISPR, and as you're alluding to, um, this is a revolution, is making gene editing much easier, although there's still, uh, I'd still be quite uneasy about using it on people because there is still concern about so-called off-target effects, but it is a sort of step change in our ability to manipulate genetic codes. Thank you for listening to Jepper Bites. If you like this episode, please subscribe to our show on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this. Jepperbytes is a Launchora production. Producers of Story Talking with Laksh, The Visionary Podcast, Jazz India Circuit Podcast, Poetry Darbar, and most recently, Play Me Life. All our shows are available on all major podcast apps. Once again, I'm your host, Laksh Data, and thank you for listening. Thank you.